Our reading this morning comes to us from the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. The prophet writes, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Thank you, Matt. And we are continuing in our series on holiness called Becoming Like Jesus. A sermon this morning is the helper in our holiness. 1 John 2, 1 through 6. This is the word of God. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous, he is the propitiation for our sins, or satisfying atonement. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Heavenly Father, now we pray for the illumination of the Spirit to open the eyes of our hearts that we may see, perceive, and know What is your word, your will, and your word for us, O God, this morning? Convict us and convince us of his truth and transform us through the washing and regeneration of the word on our hearts and minds that we may leave this place differently than the way we came in. In Christ's name, amen. Matt read a passage from the book of Isaiah, and it is a famous passage And it is a passage about the coming Savior and how he would deal with sin. Isaiah the prophet, throughout all of the book of Isaiah, is aware of humanity's sinfulness. In Isaiah 6, the prophet Isaiah had a vision of God. And he writes in 6 and 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke, and Isaiah said, Woe to me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And in Luke chapter 5, when Simon Peter's nets broke with fish after he doubted the Lord, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying something similar. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And a consistent theme emerges in Scripture that when people find themselves in the presence of a holy God, it's hard not to be aware of your sinfulness. We can relate, can't we? Hopefully by now you've gathered that that's why we confess our sins together in church. It's sort of a liturgical movement expressing this reality that God is holy and we're sinful. The call to worship every Sunday, God calls us into his presence, and like Isaiah and like Simon Peter, we say we are a sinful people. Woe to the Christian who never thinks about their sins, who is never grieved by their sins, who never sees a need to repent of their sins or feel sin's offense to a holy God, for they will soon not see the need at all for their redemption. We ought never to think lightly of sin. We ought never to diminish the full gravity and weight of sin. But the very word sin has dropped from most people's vocabulary. It's stuffy, old, passe, religious phraseology. As a culture, we've moved past that idea. And in the secularized West, the idea of sin has become almost meaningless. And when it is mentioned, it is usually misunderstood. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks question 28, what is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Want of conformity means lack or um, void of conforming to God's law, God's commandments, God's holy expectations for us. So sin is any lack of conforming to that or violation of God's commandments. And there are a host of words in scripture for sin which are translated as missing the mark or lawlessness or transgression, iniquity and trespass. One version of the Lord's prayer is Lord, Father forgive us our trespasses which indicates that we have deliberately crossed a line, the idea of trespassing, crossing a line with God. Now those working definitions of sin were so universal, God's holiness so accepted at one time, and the danger of continuing in sin so real, that Jesus could simply tell people, stop sinning. Twice, Jesus simply tells people to stop sinning. Imagine someone shared with you some of their struggles and you just said, you know, you just need to stop sinning. 
We don't, we don't talk like that. But Jesus did. In John 5, 14, after healing the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda, he's, it says Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And in John 8, Jesus tells the woman caught in adultery, which we all know is a setup. Woman, where are your accusers? This is, of course, after he said, whoever is without sin cast the first stone, and they all left one by one. She responded, he said, has no one condemned you? And she responded, no one, Lord. And he said, neither do I condemn you, but go, and from now on, sin no more. Imagine if Jesus had only said, neither do I condemn you. Have a nice day. There are some people who call themselves Christians that for them, that's where the verse stops. It's, I don't condemn you. You can do whatever you want. But that statement, that second clause is there. Jesus didn't say, I don't condemn you because sin is not condemnable, but because at that moment in his ministry, he was not acting as judge, but as savior. His judgment was deferred to the future, is deferred to the future. But when he said, I don't condemn you, it's not because one day sin will not be condemned. It will be. But in that moment, Jesus was not serving as judge. And he says, sin no more. The heresies of theological liberalism and antinomianism crumble at the feet of these verses. John the Apostle, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6 that we've just read, says that the whole purpose of his letter is to prevent us from sinning. He writes in verse 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's the whole purpose of his letter. I don't want you to sin. Whatever I can do to encourage you not to sin. That's the whole purpose I'm writing this letter, that you may not sin. We don't hear that very often, do we? We don't think about that very often, do we? That that is part of the heart of God for each and every one of us, not to sin. It seems so blunt, it seems so direct, it's almost elementary. Really? But the truth is plain and simple, as this, voice, this verse shows us we should avoid sinning. We should do everything in our power not to sin. We should make no provision for the flesh. We should leave no space for the door to be open for Satan and temptation so that with all of our might and power we can avoid sin, yes, avoid sinning. Take every necessary precaution against sinning. We should avoid make it, making a practice of sinning, as John will later admonish us in chapter 3. But it is, to, it is possible to be too lenient or too severe with sin. So we don't want a pendulum swing from one extreme to the other where we, we say we're too hard or we're too easy. Too lenient with sin or too severe with sin. In other words, it's possible to fall into into a ditch on either side of the road. 
And look at how John follows up that statement in verse 1. He says, but if anyone does sin, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. It's such a succinct summary of the Christian life, isn't it? I desire your holiness, is what he's saying. I long to see you living in obedience. My heart yearns that you walk in righteousness. Don't take sin lightly. Don't underestimate its seriousness. But if you sin, if you slip, if you fall, if you fail, the one who died on the cross and has been raised stands in the gap for you still. He helps us. He advocates for us still. In other words, don't sin. Try not to sin. Do everything in your power to avoid giving place to the enemy. Make every precaution. Take every precaution against sinning. But if you do, look to Jesus. Look to his sacrificial atoning death. Look to the cross's everlasting power to save you. Not try harder, which is the message from many pulpits. Or do works of penance. Or pay restitution to God. No. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. One who helps us, who advocates for us, who pleads on our behalf. And so there is this idea when we think about holiness, we have to understand that there is a helper in our holiness. We're not just left to our own efforts, our own devices, our own sort of the power of our will to just to do it and make it happen as if by sheer determination we're going to be holy. We have an advocate with the Father. We weren't just saved from our sins. We are being saved from our sins. Have you ever had somebody advocate for you? Say something to someone else on your behalf that you couldn't say? Maybe because you didn't have access or because if it came from you, it wouldn't. Whatever the case may be. Of course, the image that is conjured up is a lawyer. How a lawyer is skilled to advocate on behalf of a client. He knows the law. He's, he or she has passed the bar examination, familiar with the intricacies of the justice system. You can represent yourself, but there is something about that advocate who goes between you as a mediator between you and the judge. Says things, knows things, and can do things you couldn't do for yourself. We're not just, we haven't just been saved, we are being saved through the ongoing advocacy and ministry of intercession from Jesus. And this, when we think about holiness, when we think about trying to be holy, 
when we think about the ways that we fall, fail, and falter, this keeps us from despair. This reality of Jesus' ongoing intercession for us, his advocacy for you and I, helping us in our holiness, this keeps us from despair. Because the, the failings, the times where we fall in sin are enough to destroy us, destroy our faith. And many have shipwrecked their faith because of this. Many, many who have grown up or been around legalistic contexts who are simply said, try harder and harder, and after they fail again and again and again, they say, this is just too hard. I can't do this. And they walk away from their faith. And it is possible that they have not been able to capture this gospel reality, the truth of this. In our discipleship training, we're doing some discipleship training right now called uh, Life on Life Discipleship, and there is a, our, our leaders, those who will launch this movement, we're going to be launching a discipleship movement in the fall, and we're doing all the training now. Um, <clears throat> and as we go through the training, there is something we've been exposed to called the gospel waltz. When we sin, we need to repent, believe, and obey. Every time we fall short, this is sort of the, the three-step motion of, I don't know, I'm holding somebody in a gospel. I don't, know how, I, don't, I don't know the waltz, but I assume there's the three steps versus, versus two steps, right? The gospel one, one, two, three. It's a gospel waltz, they call it. It's really helpful. It's the waltz. It's this action of repenting, believing, and obeying every time we fall, knowing that there is this process for us we repent, which is what sin do I need to confess and repent of? What could be the root sin? Unbelief, pride, lust, or selfishness. That's the repenting. Then we believe. How has Christ forgiven me? How can I rest in Christ's righteousness and finished work? And that's the believing part. And then we obey. How am I called to obey in this situation? How is the Holy Spirit prodding me on toward love and good works? And if you only have two of these, if one, if one of the, you know, the three is missing, you have all sorts of errors. You have moralism, you have licentiousness, you have legalism, but when they're all three working together, you have the gospel. This is a formula for our holiness because there are times when we sin. This cycle of repenting and believing and obeying. And without this understanding, I believe that holiness will prove a futile, soul-crushing endeavor without this. And indeed, many holiness movements that emerged out of either out of the Reformation or the First or Second Great Awakening, have created movements where, that were rife for soul-crushing defeat. Don't sin, but if you do, all is not lost. This is the message. There's hope because you are in Christ, and he pleads our cause against our accuser, Satan. Christ pleads our cause before a hostile world, and Christ even pleads our cause before a guilty conscience. 
He intercedes for us before the Father who forgives us. And so when we feel the prick and sting of our sin, we repent of it. We believe this gospel reality. And then we obey again. Some of us may feel like, why even bother? But, of course, the movement of the gospel is, no, we continue to obey. We don't throw our hands up in the air when we fall short because we believe that we were supposed to create a perfect record. And now, now if you're a perfectionist, that really gets at you, right? And maybe you're the kind of person where if you're, you know, if you're uh, writing a letter by hand and if you've got one mess up, you, you crumple the whole thing, you throw it away. And maybe as a result, you don't like writing handwritten letters. Now, some of us, it's no big deal. You just, you know, cross out the typo and you keep going and you're not bothered by the fact that there's like a smudge in your letter. But the pursuit of holiness can feel like trying to write a letter by hand with typos where you just want to throw it away and never try again after three or four or 10 or 20 or 100 tries. But the word to us is no. We're not trying to be perfect anyway. We're not trying to create a perfect record anyway. What we are doing is trying to obey. The perfect record, of course, of righteousness was accomplished by Jesus in his perfect life and in his perfect death. We're called to repent. We're called to believe. We're called to obey. And if we fall, we're called to repent. We're called to believe. And we're called to obey. The obeying is just as important as the repenting and believing. And obeying is part of what becoming Christ-like is. Look at verses 3 and 6. So think about what John has already said. I don't want you to sin, but if you do, we have an advocate with the Father, and then he returns to obedience. By this, we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments... Now, it may seem like, well, this feels like more legalism, but actually he's getting at something different. He's getting at this idea of abiding in Christ. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are, there it is, in him. Later on in chapter 3, he'll refer to this in himness as abiding in Christ. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And look at what it says. Keep his commandments. Keep his word. Walk in the same way he walked. Knowing Christ and obedience to Christ are not two different things. In fact, it's very hard to tell the two apart. In John 15, Jesus tells his disciples, abide in me and I in you. John 15 and 4. I am the vine, Jesus says, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Christ abides in us and we must abide in him. But how do we abide in Christ? We abide in him by obeying him. You know, you can can leave fruit on a branch, but if you cut the branch off from the tree, a lot of you don't know this. Some of you know this. I would hope you know this. But 
a tree, a tree is sort of identical um, under, underground, except without the, the leaves and the fruit. You know, a tree grows up, there's all the branches, and on the bottom underneath the ground, there's all these roots. And essentially, if you flip it upside down, it would look almost identical. The roots that go into the ground are for nutrients, for water, and that water goes all the way up, those nutrients, all the way up the tree slowly, and it filters out to the branches, and it feeds those, that fruit. But if that branch is separated from the tree, whatever fruit is on that branch over time will rot and wither because that branch ceases to abide in the tree and it will no longer produce good fruit. And the same is true for the Christian who ceases to abide in Christ. They cease to produce good fruit. When we abide in Christ, when we're connected to him, he abides in us, we are living out our faith through obedience, we produce good fruit. Jesus said, every tree that doesn't bring forth good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so this mutual indwelling, Christ in us and we in him cannot be separated from personal holiness. And in John chapter 3, he puts a sharper point on it. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen or known him. What he's really talking about is the idea of sinning wantonly or thoughtlessly, or continuing in the habit of habitual sin. This isn't saying that we have to be morally flawless. If it was, that would contradict what he said in verse 1, if anyone sins. Don't sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. What he's talking about here is continuing in habits of sin that Christ died to rescue us from. And what he's really naming is not this sort of earning, but sort of the, the, the product of knowing Christ. It's saying that if we're serious about being Christians and being in Christ's love, well, we must be equally serious about holiness because it authenticates our claim to be a Christian. And you know this, you know this. You see people who not just talk the talk, they walk the walk. In fact, maybe it's happened to you that people who had never heard your profession of faith after knowing you for a while say, I thought you were a Christian. That's happened to many of you. Because they are seeing the fruit of your life. They are seeing you bear that fruit. They are seeing your personal holiness. They are seeing your good works, and in their heart, they're glorifying your Father who's in heaven. Conversely, we may not with our lips say it, but it's not wrong for us in our hearts when we see someone who professes faith and doesn't live like it for us in our hearts to say, eh, I don't know, right? That is the natural reaction. And so holiness authenticates our claim to be a Christian. Here are a couple takeaways 
Maybe you can write this down if you want. A complete disregard for holiness indicates that we do not have fellowship with Christ and we are not in him. And walking with Christ and abiding in him involves walking as Christ did and keeping his commandments. Are you serious about holiness this morning? Yeah, I know it's passé. It's like archaic religious language. No one talks about it. I don't see any Instagram influencers representing it. You're not going to probably monetize your YouTube channel with it. It's not a hot topic right now. But are you pursuing holiness, personal holiness? Do you, do you mortify your sins? Are you mortifying your sins, killing and crucifying the things that get between you and your walk with the Lord that would interrupt and rob and steal your abiding in him? Holiness is the test by which genuine faith is discerned. And it will show itself in a new life of obeying God and imitating Christ. That's what holiness is. It's obeying God and imitating Christ, among other things. There are other things. Loving God. Our hearts being surrendered to him. By faith, we have union with Christ. But by our habits, we have communion with him. So, we want to know, is my union with Christ in jeopardy when I sin, even though I am trying to pursue the best I can, the Christian life? No. Our union with Christ is by faith and faith alone. But our communion with him is interrupted when we disobey. So how do we have communion with him? We have union with Christ through faith, by grace through faith alone. But we have communion with him, and we talked about this last week, by prayer, by fellowship with one another, having true Christian community as we encourage one another and keep one another accountable why isolation is so bad. It's why it's not enough for you just to say, I pray and I read my Bible on my own. That's not enough. We have to have true Christian community. And by the Lord's Supper, which is actually called communion. We call the Lord's Supper communion. And, of course, by obeying his commandments. So then, in conclusion... As the fruit of our holiness, let us make every effort to obey. Let us do that. Let us take John's words seriously and Jesus' words. Sin no more. Do not make a habit of sinning. Do not continue sinning. Do not go on sinning. Make no provision for the flesh. Make every effort to obey. But if you fail, if you do sin, let us repent and believe that he continues to advocate for us and he forgives us. And then let us be assured 
that Christ is the helper in our holiness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the saving knowledge that Jesus was sent into the world to once and for all address the issue of sin for your people. That no longer, no longer we would have to go to a priest who offers sacrifices daily, weekly, yearly on our behalf, but that you sent your son to act as a high priest who once and for all offered the atoning sacrifice and blood of his own body for us and on our behalf. We thank you, O God, that in him we have forgiveness, and it is only, only, through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, that we're saved from sin's penalty and guilt. And we have fellowship with you by faith in Christ's redeeming and atoning work through nothing else, not our own effort. But let us equally have the conviction that as a result of our gratitude and loyalty and thanksgiving for that provision of sacrifice, that atone for us, that we ought to spend our lives living out obedience and holiness out of thanks, out of gratitude, out of loyalty to Jesus who saved us from our sins. And let us remove every obstacle, every sin and weight that does so easily beset us and run the race with patience and pursue godliness, knowing that Jesus is the helper. In our holiness, in Christ's name, amen.